Hey Field Hang 10, watch out for a new wave of episodes for Forgotten Cinema Season 9, Forgotten Summer. Ugh, really, Butler, a theme season? Let me guess, we're going to talk about films that were released in the coveted summer months that for some reason seem to be forgotten by audiences. You know it, bro. What we liked about them or maybe didn't, but we'll always recommend people check them out. Maybe they'll find their own Forgotten Summer gem. So check out Forgotten Summer wherever you get your podcast, part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Hold on, gotta catch this wave. We're sitting at this in the recording booth. Attention, culture consumers. Join me, the queen of queries, Sarah O'Connor, and my band of nerdy knights. Colleen McMillan. Flo Siegel. And Anders Drew. On Bohemian Geek Studies, where we take extremely dorky dives into our favorite fandoms, especially that Star Wars galaxy far, far away. Listen each week as we examine the stories that mean so much to us. Bohemian Geek Studies is available wherever you get your podcasts and is proudly part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Welcome to Cracking One Open with Mike and Elise. Or is it Mo and Elise? No, it's Mike. I just thought I'd do an even worse voice than my actual voice. I'm a little sick this week, folks, so my <laughs> voice is going to sound a little Mo Sizlacky. So you start down low just to, you know, set the bar low and then exactly. bring it up Go high? Up okay. high. So this sounds fantastic compared to this. All right, this beer fit smells good. It's uh, great. It's like cigarette ash in your face. I love it. Oh. Mm. So yeah, my voice is a little raspy. <laughs> it's got personality I guess I can go way low with it I guess <laughs> Bow chicka wow wow Baby <laughs> Can't get enough of your love <laughs> <laughs> Alright Barry You ready for what we're drinking this week? <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> So this week we are cracking open Switchback IPA from Switchback Brewing Company, <laughs> located in Burlington, Vermont. Switchback was founded in 2002. Wait, with- home of the Coat Factories? Did I say Burlington? Oh, <laughs> Burlington, Vermont. <laughs> no, no, not home of the Coat Factories, oh, or at okay. least not to my knowledge. Switchback was founded in 2002 with one goal in mind, to brew unexpected, relatable, great tasting beer. Isn't that kind of like... I was just thinking, yeah. That's not that's not Switchback's fault. Not, not yeah, not to the say that that's not a good goal. Of most breweries but is I would very very much the same. That the we goal want relatable, to create, yeah. drinkable beers. What do you like? Other than maybe Dogfish Head, where it's like we want to make some fucked up weird shit that only we like. Maybe sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like I, I think most people are basically trying to make some uh, delicious, relatable, drinkable beers. I would hope so. So with that goal in mind. Business partners Bill Cherry, the brewing expert, and Jeff Nieblum, an entrepreneur, began their new adventure. The first pint of Switchback was served on October 22nd, 2002. An actual date. Interesting. Right? So according to their website, all Switchback beers are brewed in Burlington and are carbonated during fermentation by the yeast itself, resulting in a 100% naturally conditioned beer. After aging, they say, we simply move the beer to the keg or bottle, leaving it unfiltered for the freshest, fullest, most natural flavor possible. 
The result is a beer that defies easy description because it's brewed to a flavor idea and not based on any existing style guidelines. Question. Yes. Um, 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 <laughs> Mike? Yes, thank you. Uh, so they say that they carbonate it naturally with yeast. Mm-hmm. How are other beers carbonated if not with yeast? I think it maybe other beers go through another carbonation process before bottling, whereas they bottle it and then let the yeast do its thing. Ow. We've had beers before that are naturally conditioned. I just can't name them off the top of my head. <laughs> Ooh, I'm very curious about the carbonation then. Hmm. Also, there's no reasoning as to why they called themselves Switchback. Not that I found. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. And that's exactly how Switchback Ale was developed in Bill's imagination with no test brewing. He envisioned maximizing complexity, flavor, and delivering beer the way a brewmaster experiences it. So like I said, they opened in 2002. They hired their first employee in 2003 and eventually started running 24 hours a day just to keep up with demand. As demand continued to grow, Switchback added state-of-the-art German equipment, including a 1964-built copper brew house from Browery Schmucker in Bierfelden, Germany. Nice. Well done. I'm sure the Reichert side Thank of you. your family Thank right you. now Very up there proud. in heaven are looking down going, <laughs> Oh, Daliban, oh my God. <laughs> uh, a bottling line and a canning line, all to ensure the high quality and flavor standards that Switchback fans had grown to love. They opened the tap room at Switchback in 2014, quote, as an outlet to showcase experimental brews and limited release batches that you usually can't find anywhere else. Wow. So 12 years later, it took before they opened their tap room. Yep. Wow. That's weird. Pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but to be fair, 2012 is really, I mean, our part of the East Coast is when the advent of craft breweries really started. True. That's when everything started popping up here. Yeah. Big time in Connecticut. Yeah. Uh, And then in 2017, Switchback actually became 100% employee owned via an employee stock ownership plan and will remain locally owned and operated forever. Switchback (laughs) Switchback is the first Vermont brewery to operate under this structure. So let's get to the beer. Switchback describes their IPA like this. Quote, formulated specifically to maximize a fresh character and hop flavor that lasts throughout its shelf life, Switchback IPA generously blends Centennial, Amarillo, Cascade, Chinook, and Simcoe hops. A complex aroma pairs with a light malt touch to create a delightfully flavorful IPA, bursting with citrus and floral hop character. The Switchback IPA can travels anywhere and raises the bar for a premium IPA experience. So Switchback IPA clocks in at 5.9% ABV, has an IBU rating of 74, which is on the higher end for IPAs. Um, they generally fall within the range of like 40 to 70. And that's a regular IPA, not including English IPAs or Imperial IPAs. British IPAs are better known as bitters. <laughs> Fancy. I think. Pretty sure. <laughs> so first up, we've got Centennial Hops. Developed in 1974 and released in 1990, Centennial Hops are a mix of Brewer's Gold, East Kent Golding, Fuggle, and Bavarian Hops. Fuggle Hops, I feel like, are made from like the things, creatures from Fraggle Rock or like Muppets. (laughs) Instead of Fraggle Rock, it's Fuggle Hop. Fuggle Hops. (laughs) Down to Fuggle Hops. Down to Fuggle Hops. So 
Both Centennial and Amarillo hops are considered uh, very close to Cascade. In fact, Centennial is known as Super Cascade because of their shared citrus and soft pine characteristics, just minus the grapefruit flavor of Cascade. But what makes Centennial special is its versatility within its uh, depth of bitterness and aroma that balances out very nicely. And that is what keeps Centennial in high demand. Then we have Cascade Hops, which were pioneered in the 1950s and released in the 70s. It was the first hop to come out of the USDA hop breeding program and has since become one of the most popular hops of all time, or American hops of all time, I'm sorry. It represents about 10% of all hops grown in the United States, at least when the article was written. (laughs) And from a very quick preliminary search, there are about 50 varieties of American hops currently in production. So that's still a decent percentage of of, uh, Cascade, if that's accurate. It does not store well, but that's usually not an issue because it's so popular. Cascade has a distinct spicy, citrusy aroma with hints of grapefruit, and it's actually pretty similar to Howard Tower Mittelfrach. Next up is Amarillo, which has a distinct flowery, spicy, and tropical note. They are considered dual purpose for both aroma and bittering, but they're often used for dry hopping to augment the really lemon, orange, citrusy characters in that particular brew. Amarillo hops were discovered by accident. Whoopsie. There was no purposeful breeding intended for them, but they were found growing alongside Liberty hops at Gamash Farms in Washington in 1990. Gamash. And they looked just a little different in color, size, and the way that they grow. So the farmers knew it was different than Liberty. They named it Amarillo because of its slightly more yellow color. And Gamash Farms owns all rights to this variety and is the exclusive grower of Amarillo. So they're not easy to come by, unfortunately, unless you're a big commercial brewer because they get first dibs. First dibs. Next up is Chinook. Chinook hops were bred back in 1974 by Chuck Zimmerman while he was working for the USDA hop breeding program. It was released in 1985 and found popularity with both mainstream and craft brewers. And for the most part, mainstream brewers uh, like Coors liked Chinook for its bittering qualities, but craft brewers found that the flavor and aroma were something to be appreciated as well. So it's definitely a dual purpose uh, hop variety. Chinook can be slightly spicy uh, with a kind of smoky or earthy quality. And it also has an impressive pine kind of resin character that's not common uh, among other hop varieties. Hmm. But it does share the same mild fruitiness similar to that of other Northwest hops like Columbus and Centennial. And last but not least, we have Simcoe, a hop with a lot of those bright citrus flavors and those earthy undertones, a lot of grapefruit and pine and herbs. And Simcoe hops are super versatile. They're used in many different types of beer to complement the other hops that are being used. Because of its high alpha acid content and relatively low cohumulone levels, it makes for a good foundational bittering hop. And its nickname is Cascade on Steroids. It's often used in in conjunction with Cascade, Centennial, Chinook, and Citra, just for that extra punch of flavor. Simcoe is also useful for its aroma qualities because it has that nice balance between pleasantly fruity and earthy. And as I mentioned before, it seems like Simcoe can be used in pretty much anything, but it's used in IPAs, double IPAs, India Black Ales, India Red Ales, Barley Wine, Amber Ale, 
American stouts, American porters, American and Belgian wheat beers, and lagers. Cool. And that's all I got to say about that. So does that mean... uh, It's it's beer beer clock. Oh! I love you. (laughs) I love you, silly lady. (laughs) Let's do this. Beer, 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 beer. Bro, you ready for some beer, bro? I'm ready for some switchback IPA, bro. I hope I can taste it. Me too. Ooh. Ooh, I could that smell pine. I could smell that. Uh-huh. Well, that's a good sign. Switchback. If you can cure my cold, <laughs> you've automatically made yourself the best beer of 2021 for me. Right. Ooh, I was not expecting the darker color. What's this SRM? No SRM, just IBU. IBU means nothing. SRM means everything. <laughs> Holy unfiltered. Oh, shoot. We didn't read the directions at the bottom. Oh, no. We were supposed to roll it. Fuck. Oh, I'm gonna. I don't have as much sediment in mine, or at least not visibly. So my chunkage is all at the bottom. Good for you. Cheers. So there, visibly, there's really not a head on this. Nope. I've also lost the smell. I don't know if you've got the smell. No, I've got it. You're just stuffed up. But I smelled it when it opened. Also, not a lot of carbonation, at least from the look of it. And holy yeah. shit, is it like unfiltered as hell? Diving in. All right. Oh, that is nice though. I like that. That's refreshing. That's this, this when I think IPA, this is it. It's very refreshing. It is bitter, but not in like a It's a very balanced bitter. Yeah, it's not like ooh, ugh, biting kind yeah. of a bitter. It has just enough fruitiness to kind of negate the effect of of the bitterness, like the dry dry feeling of bitterness. Okay. But without adding so much fruitiness that it feels like a like a New England IPA. I'm not able to pick out like, oh, there's the grapefruit. Oh, there's the apricot. Oh, there's the papaya. It just kind of plays well together. Yeah. Well, the sweetness is definitely there to balance out that bitterness. But I kind of like that quick bite of bitterness it gives you. Yeah. I like that a lot. It's a little it's a little sharp on the tongue at first mm-hmm. and then it mellows out. Right away. So yeah, we just took a brief pause so I could blow my nose so I could taste blow it. the shit out of your nose. Yeah, so it wasn't just all sensations. And yeah, it does have a nice fruity character to it. Um, but it's also piney. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely not a New England IPA. But it's not exactly a West Coast style either. No, but there's that pininess is, of course, obviously. Yeah. I, I really like the West Coast style. Oh, yeah. Now. No, I that and that's I think what I'm enjoying about this is it's unique from all the other IPAs that we've been having for so long. Right. Well, I feel like this is what kind of IPAs were. Yeah. And then at least around here, it all became New England. Yep. And then obviously now a lot of West Coast have kind of entered the fray, mm-hmm. but you don't really get classic IPAs. Yeah. Now you'll get like one coast or the other coast or double or triple or fruited IPAs. It's Mm -hmm. tough to get, or obviously milkshake IPAs and stuff too. Mm -hmm. It's tough to get an actual just classic IPA. Yeah. And I feel feel like like that's what it is. Yeah. A little bit of that West Coast, a little bit of that East Coast mingling together, piney but fruity, Mm -hmm. uh, bitter, but not 
cloyingly so, if I'm using cloying the right way. I feel like cloying is more in terms of sweetness. But I also I feel like cloying is in terms of sticking around, you know? Oh. Like a stickiness. Like yeah, maybe, maybe I just don't understand the... <laughs> well, clo- like a cloying sweetness like stays and it's like over overstays its welcome almost. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the bitterness isn't cloying because it it's there. It's definitely there and you appreciate it, but it's not there and like, ah, oh, it's just so bitter. Yeah. Um, it's there to like give your mouth like a little, ooh. Yeah, it plays, it plays with your tongue and then it gives way to the fruitiness. It stays just long enough. Yeah. Which, you know, that could just be me. I love bitter. Yes, you do. So uh, I do notice that because I just finally burped for the first time drinking this beer. Uh, the burp back is very double IPA type kind of a. Really? Burp back or like a super. It definitely burps back as an unfiltered beer. <laughs> is if that it, makes sense? Is like this going to be a, a new segment? What's the burp back like? What's the burp back? <laughs> well. My taste is gone. So the burp back allowed me to do the aftertaste because I don't think I'm getting any aftertaste. And that oh. could just be the beer doesn't have an aftertaste. But I think it really my, doesn't. Right now, my senses are too weak to get the aftertaste. So the burp back was kind of my aftertaste. No, I think you're right. It just doesn't have a, a lingering aftertaste. But no, I can see why they had to run 24 hours. If this was one of their initial beers, mm-hmm. this is fantastic yeah. restaurant beer. This is oh my great God. paired with this, any this kind would of honestly food. have back in 2002. If I mean, I was in eighth grade in 2002, mm. but <laughs> had I been, you know, of legal drinking age, I mean, yeah, this is perfect for food. Yeah. Hanging is, out year round. This is just a great IPA. Yeah. This is great with burgers. This would be great with chicken. This is great with steak. I don't know if an IPA is great for fish. I was just thinking seafood. Eh. <laughs> I mean, I can have it with salmon. But salmon is but such salmon a different has kind a, of fish. Yeah, and it has a taste that can hold up, whereas right. something like whitefish would just be lost. Oh, yeah. If I ate this with flounder, what was the point of me making the flounder? Yeah. Uh, swordfish, because that's a completely different type of fish as well. But yeah, cod, flounder, you know, Any, I would Anything say, bland like, tu- like that uh, would tuna. just be lost, yeah. Well, maybe tuna. You know, I'd say tuna would actually be okay. Tuna steak. Bumblebee tuna? You could eat this with a tuna fish sandwich. Absolutely. Tuna fish sandwich. I was thinking of tuna like a tuna steak. I was thinking of Ace Ventura too. Bumblebee tuna? Bumblebee tuna. I like them already. Bumblebee tuna. Bumblebee tuna. Hi there. Nice to see you. Bumblebee tuna. Bumblebee tuna. I don't remember that scene in Ace Ventura. Oh, man. All right. We're going to have to rewatch Ace Ventura. I watched Ace Ventura 2 not that long ago too. Really? Yeah. Without me? Yeah. Oh, bastard. Guano. Yeah, that's the back guano is the best part. <laughs> the back guano, the temple at the beginning when he's uh, with the monks. Yep. The slinky. The, yeah, yeah, slinky's down the thing. Um, And then the hippopotamus, uh, the birth, birth of the hippopotamus. Yep. But also when he fights that giant guy with the little guy in his backpack at and oh, he yeah. comes out and he gets shot in the in the legs and he's just like, ah, <laughs> ah, ah, ah. <laughs> For those of you at home, I'm gesturing to on each, each leg, leg as they get hit by a, an arrow. I was gonna say this is a this is an audio medium. Yeah. <laughs> I just realized that. <laughs> I love you. Um, but no. <laughs> I was thinking to mistake, not bumblebee too. <laughs> But no, this is great for food, so I, I can understand why any restaurant would order, be ordering this and why they'd have such a high demand, even though they never had a tap room or anything. Yep. But like you said, 
I think tap rooms, not only did they only start picking up in like the early 2010s here, mm-hmm. I feel like everywhere tap rooms meant something different back then. I feel like until the 2010s, until like our generation graduated college and went looking for breweries, mm-hmm. I feel like tap rooms were something where you did the tour, you had your sample of beer, and then you left. I don't think tap rooms were the same now where they're like bars, like little community areas. Oh, yeah. Where you're drinking uh, with your friends, where you're eating the food trucks yeah. for tasting local foods, where it's a really interesting taste of the area. Mm-hmm. I can see them that maybe that's why, because tap rooms didn't mean the same. So maybe they even did have you come and get a sample. Yeah. Like maybe on the brewery floor and then you I left. Would be, yeah, I'd be very interested to know what what breweries were like, like in the like early 2000s, late and, 90s, early 2000s. Oh, the 90s would be completely different. Although you see, the only thing I really have to go off of for that is mm-hmm. the Simpsons with the Duff tour. <laughs> but if that's to be believed and that's close to like Sam Adams or Coors or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, they did have all their different types of the beer in like a tap room style and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But it seemed more like amusement parky, more like chintzy and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Whereas you go now and it's trying to be that flavor of like the emotion they're trying to give off the the look, the style. Yeah, you know? well, it's a, it's a communal experience. Right. The way the way beer is meant to be experienced. Yeah. But I also think it's a taste of community as well. Oh, for Not sure. Not just community like like you say friends but like you go to two roads mm-hmm. uh, especially classic two roads two roads proper mm-hmm. you can walk up to mm-hmm. anyone and be like hey you know what you drinking what's your favorite oh yeah but also you go up those stairs it's an old baird building you get this feeling of stratford you see all the airplanes and mm-hmm. things you see how important sikorsky is to stratford so you get a taste of kind of their history. Yeah. You see on all the facts. How, how the they were window. able to revitalize that part of his of the that city's history, but in a new way. Yep. And you go to the tap room and there's all the different stuff, but you have all the different beers and they're all named after different Stratford things. But then you go downstairs and there's always a different food truck from the area, mm-hmm. different flavors of of it. You've got Pizza Co. right across the street that does New Haven style or Brooklyn style pizza. Mm-hmm. So you get like this. You know, if you're not from the area, you get this kind of very New England, Connecticut, Southern Connecticut feel to it. Yeah. You go to other breweries and you get the feel of their area, like Kemp, Kemp Farms or Kemp Falls. Uh, I wish I was there with you. It's yeah. such a farm. It's such a upstate Connecticut, upstate New York kind of like, here's the Northeast, but like that Amishy kind of <laughs> like upper crust rural version of it, mm-hmm. uh, which is... I know Connecticut's thought of as a small state, but there is such a difference between urban Connecticut and like the upstate coast toward and upstate Connecticut. Yeah. The coast is so like beach focused pizza, New York City, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Upstate Connecticut is so Amish, farmy, <laughs> like Lydia's parents' home in Beetlejuice, <laughs> uh, which actually took place in upstate Connecticut. What? Yeah. Did you know someone destroyed that bridge that? Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin died on. No. Uh, a truck ran into it. That was too big for the thing and like fucked it all up. Aww. I don't know if they could repair it or not, but I saw the pictures and I was like, oh, that sucks. Damn. Was it filmed in Connecticut? I believe that bridge scene was definitely because that's in Connecticut. Oh, okay. But not like, not necessarily the house. It just made it. It was. Oh, there's no way the set, the, the definitely a set and then the outside house. I don't know if the outside house is in Connecticut. Oh, okay. No, I don't know. It takes place in Connecticut. That's all I remember. (laughs) Um, But there's such a difference. But you get that sense of community. You get that sense of feeling. You get that sense of of where things 
are when you go. Yeah, I see all your sediment floating to the top now. No, I had a smiley face in the foam on on the top of my glass, but one of the eyes disappeared. I was going to show you. Well, now he's winking. No, now he's just got one eye. (laughs) (laughs) Where was I going with this? Oh, yeah. Sense of community and and seeing what that is. That's a modern thing. Yeah. So, you know, while I was surprised earlier in the episode about tap rooms not being a big thing, I think now... um, Tap rooms mean community, they mean bar, they mean business. And I think tap rooms now mm-hmm. must be a big chunk of revenue for breweries as well. Oh, absolutely. Much bigger. Like obviously not huge. Something like Switchback, Two Roads, Sierra Nevada, obviously, mm-hmm. Ballast Point, Dogfish Head, all these breweries that are big time national breweries mm-hmm. that are still craft breweries probably do a lot of money in their tap room, but it's probably peanuts compared to what they make in distributing. Yeah. Liquor stores, restaurants, all that kind of stuff. But for most breweries, I think the tap room is, is big business. Obviously we talk about Tribus all the time. Tribus still does not distribute out to restaurants for the most part. There are very rare occasions. Yeah. There's a few, there's a handful of restaurants that are able to get a, a hold of Travis's kegs. But. Every once in a while, they'll send one out. Yeah. Um, I feel like Liberty Rock Tavern, because their food truck's always there, and they're yep. in Milford, get it. Dockside. Dockside, because they've teamed up with them, but they're another brewery, so that's like, kind of yeah. like a tit-for-tat kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Although Dockside's not served there. But they obviously make crazy taproom business, though. So I think even though they're in a large... Tribus is in a large facility. Tribus has the ability to put stuff out, um, at least locally, but... I don't know if they can because their tap room is always hopping. It's so packed. Yeah. I and wouldn't be surprised beer gardens if always hopping. whatever supply of beer that they could potentially send out is, yeah, just taken up by what's sold in the tap room. Which is great. And they're making money that way. Oh, yeah. Community. It's smaller, but it's 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 making them money. And to be fair, that, that cool. might make them more money in the long run because obviously, you know, drafts per, you know, the whatever volume they're poured at. Is going to be is going to end up being more beneficial than canning them. Oh, for sure. Plus tips, which hopefully tip your bartender. People are doing. Well, that's that's bartender. What bartenders are taking home, not the people that are making the beer. Yeah, that's true. And the owners, but yeah, <laughs> for sure. And it really depends on you know all that kind of thing. And then there's obviously brew pubs and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I think in terms of breweries, um, I'm trying to think of something like Stony Creek sells out to liquor stores, mm-hmm. but I think they probably do. Most of their business is probably tap room, especially oh, in the yeah. summer. Yep. Uh, and then they are the like liquor a hot stores, spot in the summer. Yeah, probably help them out in the wintertime. Yep. And then people come back uh, once it gets warm again. Yeah. But I think that's probably more of a modern thing and something breweries probably caught on to later on. Yeah. You know, after, like I said, our generation, I don't know, like the 2010s kind of came out to breweries. It's true. Would you like to talk about the can? Sure. My rant is over. <laughs> the can is pretty interesting. I can see why you grabbed it because it's green AF. Yeah, it is. Uh, one thing I like about this can, and you can tell they're a extra special brewery that they're a bigger brewery. Is it's a full wraparound, man. It's a heat. It's mm-hmm. a heat sealed, uh, heat sealed label, top to bottom, which I always appreciate. Uh, this is a shiny metallic green can, lime green, really nice. Screaming my name. <laughs> uh, the top of the can has some labels. Uh, the font on the top of the can is kind of, I would say it's like football field label, football field font. I don't know oh, what, yeah. 
I don't know what you call football font, but yep. it's definitely football font. <laughs> uh, it says 100% employee owned, 100% naturally conditioned, 100% unfiltered, which clearly I didn't even talk about that. I talked about all the shit in my beer. Uh, you can't taste any of it. It's not like some of the flakes where the flakes are like obnoxious. Oh, yeah, no. actually can kind of. It does mess up the beer. It doesn't thicken it. It's not gross. It's no, completely it's, unobtrusive. Yeah, you do not taste it yeah. or feel it yeah. at all. Sometimes people say that and yet the sediment is so gross that you can. This is not that, that way. Uh, and then it says 100% Vermont made. Because like you said, they brew out of just the one brewery. Yep. Which is crazy. It must be a huge facility. Or just yeah, I don't. I don't think they listed the square footage of the facility, but it it must be big. So the front of the can or the back of the can, who knows, uh, has the switchback logo, which is super complex, big, multicolored, green, blue, white, silver, and on the bottom it says Switchback Brewing Company and some interesting, very fancy kind of piratey, swashbuckly. It is. That's a very accurate, yeah, logo, and it says Burlington, Vermont, beneath that, and it switchbacks in that same font again because obviously it's the brewery ipa and then on the bottom in more football font it says generously hopped with centennial chinook cascade and simcoe alcohol by volume is 5.9 percent and 74 ibu is on the can and then what elise was saying about the instructions are in a very dark gray font very yeah. small hard to read uh it's Really easy to understand why we missed it. it says <laughs> yeast sediment is normal before opening. Invert can and swirl to mix the yeast back into the beer for the best experience. And but like I said, I did not, not do only that. You is cannot it, tell anything. Not only is it in tiny font at mm. the bottom of the can, it's actually not even like the same color as the other fonts. No, yeah, it's like it a just dark disappears gray and disappears into the, in the green. I think there's just no color there. I think they, it's just an empty space that lets the metallic silver shine through. Boo. Yeah. So easy to miss. Pay attention to your cans. Mm. On the left side of this is the government warning, the barcode, all that kind of good stuff. It's a pint can. And then on the other side of the can is the Switchback Brewing logo and a big thing that says IPA in that football font. All white. IPA. The green can has these waves, almost like it's like a topographic map of Vermont, maybe like these dark green wavy lines. It's kind of like a topographic map of like heights and stuff. Oh, yeah, it it could totally be uh, a map like that. Yep. Um, and the main the main star of the can is the switchback logo. It's so cool. It's so complicated. I can't even tell you what it is. It's definitely an S of some sort. Yeah, it's it, got two dots, at the top and bottom of the S. It almost looks like it should be a like a it's multi an, like it like I would expect it to be an S and a B. It's a 1990s superhero symbol. That's yeah, what it is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's like let's reimagine Superman for a what if comic and make this his Superman symbol S. Uh, it's almost what it is. Which I say that with like a sarcastic like 1990s surfer dude voice. But I'm but totally also into he's it. obsessed with Superman, so and Superman it's symbols. not a dig. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's really interesting when people try stuff like that. It's a really cool S, almost like a pathway, because it does have like a thicker bottom and top at one point. The top has it's all in like an hourglass, a weird diamond hourglass. Mm -hmm. The top is blue, but where the S kind of gets three dimensional, there's green on the edging. And when the S gets three dimensional on the bottom, there's blue on the edging and green is filling in the diamond. And the S has points on where it wraps around. And there's the dot, which is obviously maybe the sun or the moon. I'm sure there's a reasoning behind the logo. Yeah, I'd like sure to know what it is. They've got it. But then on the IPA side where it's just says IPA all big, 
The Switchback logo is just black, but it does make that S with the dots. And it's really cool, unmistakable. It's definitely mm-hmm. something you could scribble. Uh, I think it's really, really cool and neat and and simplistic so that you can do that kind of shadowed version of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really cool when someone has a logo that you can do like just a simple shadow Several stamp. different ways, yeah. Yeah. When your logo is so complex, I don't. you can't do a stamp. I think that complicates things. Mm-hmm. Like Two Roads has the double hands showing the path has traveled. Yep. That's cool. They've got this. Tribus has the three lines. The stamp, yep. Uh, so I, I think having a nice stampable, scribble, marketable, merchandisable logo mm-hmm. is really, really cool. And I would definitely get stuff with that S because that S is really cool. Yeah. So if I was from Burlington, Vermont, where I visited and it was a really cool trip or something, I would absolutely get a shirt with that S on it <laughs> or something like that's really cool. And we should also mention that this is not the first beer that we've had from Switchback. I thought they seemed familiar. Yeah, we've definitely had the Switchback, um, <laughs> just the regular Switchback Ale previous to this, um, which is awesomely bottled in very retro, like tiny bottles from like the 1970s. <laughs> that's cool. Did we get that in those bottles? Mm. Not here, but we've seen them before. And I know okay. I know we've had switchback uh ale at restaurants. Or at least you have. Like I said, it does sound familiar, so I probably have. No, this is a really good beer. Great for when you have a cold, because that bitterness just you know, I'm stuffed up again, <laughs> hits, so the yeah. taste is gone now again. But that bitterness and the sweetness still come through. And it's the star of the show for me. I love that bitterness. Yeah. I really, really like this bitterness <laughs> that comes through. I'm glad you bought it. I'm glad we have two more left. Yeah, we do. Um, although they're not in the fridge right now. Womp womp. That's okay. We still have to take promo pictures I anyway. Know, but now I want something <laughs> bitter like this. Oh. Um, and the sediment, which I complained about before, like I said, you can't taste. There is a lot of sediment in this. A lot of unsettled yeast. So be prepared to roll your can. Yeah, roll your can, invert it upside down, and then crack it open. Yeah. Um, but unlike a beer, I can't remember what the beer was. We had it a few weeks ago. I don't know. Go back a month. I'll complain. <laughs> I'll complain about some sediment where I did taste it, oh. where I did feel it, uh, and that is gross. But this is oh, I this is kind of like I you know can't. which one that was. Yeah, but yeah, don't be afraid of a little sediment sometimes. But sometimes do. Just as to show you, I don't think people need unfiltered beer because sometimes it's harmless like this, and then you think the next beer you get, you're like, yeah, yeah it's gonna be fine. What's the difference then, between sediment that it makes no difference in the the ex- the well, beer experience i'll tell or- you this a look at all that sediment yeah that's too much um on the bottom my it's last swirling sip, around I do my last it looks like yeah like a timer you would get with a board game <laughs> it just keeps swirling around i think the difference between good unfiltered and bad unfiltered is the fact that if you look at this everything's very fine but bad unfiltered some of the chunks get really big yeah and it's the fact that it jellies, which this does not, but I feel like some of them get like jellied almost like oh. the beer doesn't move after you take a sip. It's like, and you don't see it falling or rising anymore. Mm. And your first sips might be okay. But then as soon as you get about halfway, it gets kind of yucky. Mm-hmm. But like I said, this beer is not like that. So it's good. So it's fine. <laughs> ah, plus the drunker I get them, less I remember I have a cold. Oh, Get me more beer. <laughs> Another. Hmm. Uh, so that's all I got. Yeah, that's all I got. Cool, cool, cool. 
All right. So thank you guys for tuning into this week's episode. And if you enjoyed it, please rate it, review it, and share it with your friends. And then subscribe to catch our future episodes. You can find us on crackandwinopen.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at crackandwinopen or shoot us an email at crackandwinopen at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or suggestions because we always want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what do you got to plug? Well, I'm going to make this short because I probably have to cough soon, but uh, I've got two <laughs> other podcasts I do. I got two player bros, a podcast I do with my buddy Dave, sometimes my brother Alex, sometimes myself, where uh, we talk about all things video game related. Xbox, PC, PlayStation, Nintendo, VR. Uh, we have it all. We play it all. That's on ForgottenEntertainment.com and wherever you get your podcast, because we are part of the Forgotten Entertainment family, just like this podcast right here. Speaking of the Forgotten Entertainment family, I'm on the podcast that started it all. Forgotten <laughs> Cinema, a podcast to do with my uh, buddy Mike Field, where we talk about films that seem to be forgotten by audiences, whether it be because a more popular movie was released at the same time or the film simply didn't catch on with an audience in its initial run. We'll discuss what we love about the movies. Maybe we don't love about them, but we always recommend you revisit them. You never know. You might find your own forgotten gem. Forgotten Cinema is available at ForgottenEntertainment.com as well. ForgottenCinemaPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, yeah. And then I got audiobooks. Buy my audiobooks, Mike Butler or Michael Butler, rather, on Audible. There's a whole bunch of us, but just search for my books. Sour, Switch Art for Gangsters, Coffee at Midnight, Progressive Entrapment, The Final Girl, uh, I, I got stuff. Uh, they're mostly horror books, except for Switch Arford and Gangsters, where I get to do a bunch of British uh, accents, and it's Voice. like a uh, Guy Ritchie type novel. But check them out. Sour, I do a bunch of Southern accents. I do a bunch of other voices in the other books. Uh, check out those books. I don't make money on them unless you buy them. So go ahead and do me a favor. Buy them. <laughs> and that's all I got. All right. And a special thanks for our theme, which was composed and performed by Joe Reichert. Until next time. Cheers. Cheers. Nice.